two in the church calendar, and I put those in quotes, the church calendar as the Holy Week. Today, Sunday, commemorates Palm Sunday. And uh, by the way, there's boys and girls, there's kids will worship. If boys and girls want to be dismissed at this point in time, there's somebody who will meet you in the foyer and lead you to that place where you get to have fun and snacks and and you don't get to hear me preach. But you can stay and listen to me preach anytime you want. The Holy Week. Today, we call it Palm Sunday, commemorating Jesus' triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. Beginning at, at the beginning of what was called Passover week in that day. In the notes inside of your bulletin today, there's one sheet. That doesn't mean it's the shortest sermon I've ever preached. It means it's the fewest action points. And I'll talk more about that in a few moments. But on the first part of that, I just wanted to give you an outline of what Holy Week entails in terms of Jesus' journey into Jerusalem. And you can read this, and I put those scriptures. We're not going to read them today. I encourage you to read them this week as each day goes by. Matthew 21, 1 through 11, Mark 11. They all tell you about the triumphal entry. Luke's account, through Jesus' eyes, it was not a triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. And those of you who are on the mailing list because you filled out the registration book that's underneath the seat or whatever, uh, I, I have been, for the last three years, I've been sending out a letter every week from my desk, just a note of thought, encouragement, or whatever. And this week, I looked at Luke's account of the uh, walking in, Jesus coming in, and him sobbing and weeping over the fact that they would claim him to be king. But as you saw that video end with the crown of thorns, that's not the king they were looking for. And we need to be careful that we are looking for the right king. Not our way, but his way. So on Sunday, he comes into the city of Beth, or Jerusalem. Uh, scripture says he, he goes in and he looks at the temple. And then he and the disciples retreat back to Bethany because it's late in the day. On Monday, Jesus returns to Jerusalem. On the way from Bethany into Jerusalem, he sees a fig tree. And he goes over to the fig tree that's full of leaves, looking for fruit, and there is none. And he curses the tree. That's a whole other message. We'll just forget that. But you can read that story. Then they go from there into the city of Jerusalem. He goes into the temple. And when he arrives into the temple... He cleanses the temple. And say cleansing the temple, he, he goes in and he, and he kicks out all the money changers and all of those who are selling their wares in the temple courts that had been designated by God to be a place of prayer. And he said, my house should be called a house of prayer. And one of the very few times that you see Jesus in the scripture showing righteous indignation is the cleansing of the temple. And it appears he might have done it twice, in the beginning and the end of his ministry. And that on this day, flipping the tables over and driving them out. And uh, that is on Monday of Holy Week. They return to Bethany with the twelve. Tuesday, they return to Jerusalem. On the way, one of them observes Jesus, that fig tree is dead. One day, totally dead. And there's a whole other sermon there for it, but you can just figure it out yourself. Read it, Matthew 21 and, and Mark 11. You can read about that fig tree. On Tuesday, Jesus, when he comes to the temple courts and begins to teach the people who want to hear him speak, the chief priests and the Pharisees and, and the Sanhedrin elders, they began to come and dispute Jesus' authority. Just who are you to speak this way? Who gives you this authority? And there's this conversation that goes on. And it's a rather lengthy um, inter interaction that they have uh, with Jesus there in the temple courts. And you can read it in Matthew 21 through Matthew 23. Matthew 23, 
is some of the sternest words that Jesus ever spoke. When he speaks to the Pharisees, and there's a list, and I forget how many times he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you, you whitewashed sepulchers. Woe to you. And he ends up by saying, Woe to you because your house is left to you desolate because you did not receive me for who I am. And a very intense moment. And you can read about that in those passages of scriptures that I have there. Um, On the way out of the temple that day, they're getting ready to go back to Bethany. Jesus kind of, I would say offhandedly, but he never did anything offhandedly. He says to the disciples, there's coming a day when not one stone of this building will be left on the other. Now that blows them away because the temple was, that was the, that was the fortress, that was the place for Jerusalem, for the Jews. And so they, Jesus, when will this happen? When will this happen? What will be the sign of the coming? And when are you going to return again? Because they've already gotten this picture that Jesus said he's going to go away and come back again. And he answers those three questions in what we call the Olivet Discourse. And you can read it in Matthew 24 and 25 and Mark 13 and Luke 21. And he tells them about the coming destruction of the city of Jerusalem by the Roman Empire. And then he answers the question, when are you coming again? And he says, of that day... No man knows the hour or the day, not even the angels in heaven, only the Father. So somebody comes to you and says, well, I figured it all out from Revelation and Daniel and Zechariah and Ezekiel. Jesus is going to come in this month of next year. Mark it down that they are probably very deceived. Because Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, People will be eating, drinking, and marrying, and giving in marriage, and life will be as usual, and suddenly the flood came. The same thing will happen when Jesus comes again. Are you ready? Are you ready? Yes. You better have an altar call. <laughs> Wednesday, Jesus continues teaching in the temple courts. And while he's teaching in the temple courts, the Sanhedrin elders have met together, and they're plotting a way to figure out to get rid of Jesus, to kill him, to execute him. You can read that in Matthew 26 and Mark 14 and Luke 21. On Thursday, it was all about the Passover meal, the preparation for the Passover meal, and then the gathering together for the meal in the upper room and the teaching that took place in the upper room and then on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane where there was prayer time in Gethsemane. You can read... Uh, what we know about that day when you, when you read in Matthew 26 and Mark 14 and Luke 22 and John 13 all the way through John 18. That many chapters of John is devoted to that one night and the words that Jesus shared with his disciples on the last night before the crucifixion. Some, some Bible scholars call it the Holy of Holies of the New Testament as Jesus shares his heart and shares with them things they need to know um, in the coming days. That all took place on Thursday, and it goes into Friday, because on Friday, sometime just after midnight, there was the betrayal. There was the betrayal and the arrest, the trial, and Friday ends with the crucifixion. You read that in Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 22, 23, and John 18 and 19. As I said a moment ago, I want to encourage you to take those scriptures and make them part of your daily devotions this week as we contemplate Good Friday and and Easter Sunday. Um, Paul said this is of first importance, foremost importance. Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus rose again. Our whole reason for being is because Jesus went to the cross and rose from the grave. And so even though we hear the story often, it is good for us to come back to the story and the foundation of who we are, and why we are. And so that's where I want to come from this morning. 
as a couple of days ago and thinking about the series I've been teaching and I think I had one more that I was going to share, but I just really felt compelled today to more than teach like I would normally do. And of course, those of you who are here all the time, you know that the last time you just had one piece of paper with notes on it was probably... But that's what I want to talk to you today about the cross and Good Friday. From the context uh, beginning, the scripture Paul said in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's interesting that Paul felt like the Lord has instructed him and us to remember the Lord's death, to remember it, to think about it. These words that Paul writes here are, are words that Jesus spoke in the upper room, and this is one of these evidences that Paul indeed had a personal revelation from Jesus Christ. When they gathered together in that upper room for the Passover feast, they were recalling the first Passover in Egypt when God delivered the Israelites from the Egyptians by the uh, sending the plague of killing the firstborn where there was no blood of the lamb on the door of the post doorpost of the house as Jesus is eating the meal back in Exodus God had told them you need to roast the lamb and you need to make unleavened bread and the Passover feast that they celebrated year after year they had several pieces of leavened bread that they ate and quoted scriptures and sang a song with. And when he takes one of those pieces of bread, he said, this is my body broken for you. And then as they pass around one of the designated cups in the liturgy of the Passover, he said, this is my blood, blood that will seal a new covenant, blood that I will spill for the forgiveness of sins for many. And the twelve, they were really clueless that night. It wasn't until later that all of this began to fit together for them. Their minds were closed to the re even thinking about Jesus dying, even though he told them already clearly, very clearly, three times by this time. They didn't want to hear that. Their minds were closed. But after Easter, they began to understand after they had that Passover meal, remember the scripture, it says that Jesus said, come, let us go. And they sang a song together and they, and they said a prayer and then they departed. And they began to walk through the city of Jerusalem from the west side, walking across the city of Jerusalem in the darkness. Jesus speaking to them on the way as they go past the temple walls, then down the slopes of the hill into the Kidron Valley coming to the entrance of the Garden of Gethsemane on the side of the Mount of Olives. It was a place that Jesus went to often when he was in Jerusalem because he said, as his custom was, it was a place he would get alone to pray to the Father because remember, he was living here as a man. He was dependent upon communication with the Father through the Holy Spirit that descended on him when, on when he was baptized in the Jordan River. Prayer was an absolute important thing for him. As he came to the garden on this particular night, he stations eight of them at the, eight of those disciples at the gate, and he takes Peter, James, and John a little farther and says to them, watch with me and pray because my soul is sorrowful unto death. And Jesus goes, it says a stone's throw further away, and he kneels down and he begins to pray. He knew his hour had come. The hour that time had been waiting for from the beginning of time. The hour 
when the Son of God would go to the cross. The hour when God the Father would make God the Son a curse. The hour when the Creator Himself would experience the death of a sinful man without God. Jesus went there to pray. He went there to battle His flesh. His humanity said, no way do I want to give myself up to be killed. No way do I want to experience the wrath of the judgment of God. It was the toughest battle he ever fought in his 33 years as a human being. Remember him praying, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. If there's any other way to do this, let's do it the other way. Those were not merely words. And I say that because sometimes our prayers are just words. They don't really come from the passion deep inside. But as you read the story, They came from the very pit of his human humanity. Father, if it be possible. The scripture tells us that he was in such physical and emotional agony that the capillaries close to the skin on his forehead began to leak blood. And there's a medical term for that, and you can Google it and find out what it is, a real thing. But Jesus began to literally bleed with his sweat. When's the last time you broke out in a sweat while you were praying in travail, asking God for something? Father, be possible. But not my will, your will be done. And he gets up and he goes to the three in their sleep. Can't you pray with me one hour? He goes back and he prays again. Three times he goes back to the disciples. I love the fact that one of the gospel writers says there came a moment when the angels came and ministered to him. And he prayed that prayer the final time. Father, not my will, but your will be done. Not long after that, these soldiers and the high priest and the elders from the Sanhedrin came towards the Garden of Gethsemane with their torches armed with clubs and swords. They were led by a man who for three years had walked with Jesus. A man who had preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. A man who had prayed and seen people delivered from demons and healed from sicknesses. Judas had received 30 pieces of silver to reveal the location of Jesus on this night. It was just enough money to buy the piece of property that he was looking at, this piece of real estate that he wanted. So he, he gives direction to this posse from the Sanhedrin. Come with me, because I know where Jesus will be. He's always there this time of night. And the man I kiss is the one you're looking for. And Judas approaches Jesus and kisses him on the cheek. The soldiers reach out to seize Jesus. But Peter, trying to live up to the claim that he made at the Last Supper a few hours before, Jesus, I'll die for you. They're not going to take you. That's not going to happen to you. And he takes out his sword. And he takes a whack at Malchus, slices his ear off. Jesus says, Peter, stop. Put away the sword. If you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? I'm doing the Father's will. The Father has a plan. We have a plan, the Father and I, and I must fulfill it. Put it away. It's only Luke, the beloved physician who traveled with Paul, who takes note of the fact that Jesus reached down and picked up the ear and put it back on his head, and then immediately it was healed. The Creator was in the garden. 
the one who could have spoken, just a new ear would have popped out if that's what he wanted to do. I often wonder what happened in Malchus's mind and heart in that moment. I'm here to take this man away. I'm hoping he got saved so when I get to heaven, I can hear his story. The next thing that took place is very significant. The Bible says they bound the hands of Jesus. They tied him, some say with ropes, some say they brought chains and fetters. But they tied his hands to lead him away. A moment before that, he had displayed his power by miraculously healing that ear. And yet, they have the audacity to put ropes around his hands. John 18 tells us that when Jesus saw the mob coming into the garden, he went out to meet them and he said, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said, I am. And those of you who read John, you know what happens next. It says that they, when he says, I am, they fall to the ground. And I've said it every time I've talked about it publicly, that if I was there and fell on the ground, I would have just turned around and crawled away into the dark. But because of the darkness of their heart, they stood back up and he said again, Whom do you seek? And Jesus, here I am. He had the power to bowl him over. And yet they put ropes on him. When some guy come busted into my office one night and ended up tying my hands and my feet behind my back, I suddenly had a whole new understanding of what it means to have your hands bound. Could those ropes hold Jesus if he didn't want to be held? I mean, Samson could break the ropes and when the Holy Spirit was on him, he wasn't the Son of God. Jesus allowed himself to be bound by, by sinful men and led from the garden like a common criminal because before the foundation of the world it had been ordained that he would become the ransom for you and me and whoever believes on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. From the garden, Jesus was taken back to the city he was taken to the house of the high priest in the courtyard of the high priest's home, or actually the former high priest, father-in-law to the present high priest, where in the middle of the night a mockery of justice began to unfold. It was against the law for the Sanhedrin to meet in the middle of the night. Without the high priest began to interview witness after witness that they had hired to concoct stories about Jesus so that they could find him guilty of a capital crime. And it's interesting that the scripture says they could not find two of them that would agree. Now they're having an illegal trial, but they want to keep it legal enough that they know that the book of Exodus says you have to have two or three witnesses for a thing to be established. And so they had to have two people agree about their accusation against Jesus. They couldn't find them. It was there that Jesus began to suffer the first of several brutal attacks against his body. Jesus responded to a question that the high priest asked him. It was an illegal question at that. And Jesus answered in a way that let the high priest know that his question wasn't proper. A soldier standing there realizing the high priest has just been put in his place steps up and slaps Jesus across the face. As this mock trial goes on in the early morning hours, we're told that the soldiers blindfolded Jesus. They hit him. They slapped him, his face and his head. 
they pulled the hair from his beard. Rick was on the first row in the first service and asked if I could pull, and he said no. And he didn't come back to the second service. <laughs> Only a man would understand the pain of somebody grabbing the hair and pulling it on your face. They would pull it out. Who did that, Jesus? Who slapped you? Who slugged you? If you're the Son of God, tell us. While all this is going on, the mocking, the lying, the abuse, Peter is watching from the far side of the courtyard in a lower level. He had just finished swearing, making oaths, I do not know this man for the third time. And he heard the rooster crow. And suddenly he remembers what Jesus had said, that you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows in the morning. No way, Jesus. One of the gospel writers said at that moment, there was eye contact between Peter and Jesus. And Peter went out and wept bitterly, having known that he failed to keep the commitment he made. As the sun rises on the Judean hills, the Jewish council officially convened. They found Jesus guilty of blasphemy for declaring himself to be the Son of God. And they sentenced him to death. The problem was they were no longer a sovereign country because they did not acknowledge God the Father the way God the Father wanted to be acknowledged. And so they were under subjection to the Roman Empire and they had to go to the Roman governor to get their penalty put to, to in the process. So they go to Pilate, the Roman governor. They plead their case. This man is guilty of treason and insurrection. That's not what they found him guilty of, but Rome didn't care whether he was a blasphemer or not. He advocates political unrest and revolt. And here's where he claims to be a king, but he's just the son of a carpenter from Galilee. Galilee, Pilate sees an out. I'm not in charge of Galilee. Herod is, and he happens to be in town today. Send him to Herod. He thinks he's getting away. Herod loves to see Jesus. He interrogates him. Jesus does not respond to any of his questions. He gets tired of the game and sends him back to Pilate. It's your problem. Pilate interrogates him again. Are you a king? I am. But my kingdom is not of this world. I was born to be a king. I was born to show the truth. At that, Pilate turns away. What am I going to do? I can find no fault in this man. But he was in political hot water with Caesar. He defended the rich Jews a couple of times, and there was this... We won't talk about how rich people have this anyway. And... Um, he defended them, and they had told Caesar, and so... He knows that he's got two strikes on him, third strike. There was lots of governors and subservient leaders who disappeared from the face of the earth under the Caesars. He didn't want to be one of them. So he has to appease these Jews, and yet he's trying to appease his conscience. I know, I'll give them an alternative. We have Barabbas in prison, Yahshua Barabbas. I'll offer them. You can have Barabbas or you can have Jesus. Who do you want? You want Barabbas, the insurrectionist, a murderer? Or do you want this man who's gone around healing people and preaching a new gospel? The people cried, give us Barabbas. So then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged or scourged. This is the second major attack against his body. When they scourged him, they flogged him, they beat him. It appears that Pilate hoped that by beating this man and bringing him back before the people, that their hearts would be melted and they'd have compassion and let him live. So he turned him over to the soldiers. They took him into the arena where they securely tied him to a post so they could not move. Now some of the reading I've read, some scholars believe that um, one of the ways that they would beat men and there's different ways, but they would tie their hands up on a pole high 
so that they were kind of like on their tiptoes on the ground. You really didn't have any, and you were at the mercy of whoever was beating you. Some others see that there's evidence that sometimes they used a short pole where they would lean the individual over so that the person's back was horizontal um, as they would beat them with the Roman whip. Some traditions tell us the Roman whip was made of uh, several leather thongs laced with uh, all kinds of um, sharp things like pottery and and, um, metal or rocks or spikes. And they would take the whip and they would lay stripes from the shoulder to the hip, beginning on the left side and working to the right side, tearing the flesh off muscles and sinews. Many times history tells us of times they would cut so deep that they could see the organs of the man inside. Many men would faint. Some would even die from the scourging. Those of you who watched The Passion several years ago from Mel Gibson, you've got that visual in your mind of them literally tearing the flesh off of his back. The crowd screaming with glee, blood, more blood. You know, if we were talking about a murderer, one of those people that goes in and shoots down little kids, and if we're talking about a rapist or child molester who robs someone's innocence. If we're talking about somebody who beats up on women and children, I can understand crying out blood, more blood. We're talking about Jesus, the Son of God, the Creator of all, the one born of a virgin, the man who never sinned one sin, the Holy One of Heaven. And they are taking glee in the fact that they are tearing the flesh from his back. As the blood begins to run down and fall on the sand, the strips of flesh torn away, his body rise and reflex to the pain, but he does not say a word. There are those who believe he received 39 stripes because that was the Jewish law. If they were going to flog you with one of their rods, their law said 40 stripes minus one. They never wanted to do overboard. 40 was the law, but they would only give 39 so they didn't break their own law. But Jesus was not being whipped by, Rome, uh, by Jewish people. He was being ripped, whipped by, by Roman people. And I have read that they had no limits of strife. It was their desire to beat the man to the point of just before he goes unconscious, just before he faints. They want him to faint. They want him to go unconscious so he didn't feel the pain. I know they laid stripes on his back. It was prophesied 700 years before that in Psalms 129, verse 3. It said, the plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. From the shoulders to the hip, they plowed the flesh with treacherous whip. Yet he said not a word. In another setting, he said to the disciples, said, he said to somebody, I could call 12 legions of angels right now. 12 legions of angels, and they could come to my defense. A legion, a Roman full legion was 6,000 men. Can you imagine what 72,000 angelic beings could do? If God said, go, He could have called fire from heaven. He'd done that before when he was in heaven. He could have called for a hole to open up in the ground and swallow them up. He'd done that before. But he endured it. He did not say a word. For the joy that was set before him is what the writer of Hebrews said. He allowed his body to be broken. And though Isaiah and Peter were separated by 700 years in duet of unison, they proclaimed, by his stripes we were healed. 
by his stripes we were healed. That scourging was not the whim of a man. or It was not Pilate's will taking place. It was the plan and the will of God the Father. It was the plan and the will of Jesus the Son to be scourged, to be broken, to be crushed in order that you and I might be made whole, body, mind, and spirit. I want to challenge you today before the service is over. To believe God for healing in your body, healing in your emotions, healing in your spirit. See, it doesn't have anything to do with your faith, nothing to do with whether or not I'm a good preacher or a bad preacher. It has nothing to do with our merit. We're going to believe God for a miracle because Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. Broken for you. The scourging was over. Anymore, and he would pass into unconsciousness and spoiler sport. Now, I know this part is speculation on my part, but somehow I think whoever was watching this take place must have been amazed at how this man endured this scourging. Can you imagine the anger that would rise up in you if somebody began to beat you and you had not committed any crime? Can you imagine the anger that would rise up in you even if you had committed a crime? I'll bet those people using the whip had heard every curse word imaginable from men that they had whipped before. I bet they saw fire in the eyes of men as they took that and wanting vengeance for what was happening to them. But Jesus did not say a word. In his eyes, it was still love and compassion because Jesus went as the Lamb of God. Though he was the Lion of Judah, on that day, he was the Lamb of God. And during it, for you and for me. They cut him loose from the post. Some reprobate. While that scourging was taking place, they come up with a crown for the king. And you saw a picture of one of them at the end of the video today. Those thorns. And I have what's supposed to be one, some thorns in my office. And they're about that long and look like needles. It says they pressed that crown of thorns into his brow onto his head. Then over his wounded shoulders and bleeding back, they draped a purple robe and began to mock him, you're a king. You know what happens when you cut your skin on your head. I mean, there's little kids who bumped their head and thought they were dying because of the amount of blood that comes from that because everything's so close to the surface. There's some older folks who've done that and thought they were dying because of so much blood. Blood running down his face. They put this robe on him and they mock him. You're the king. <laughs> they placed the reed in his hands. And, they even, and then they took, and they would pound on the crown of thorns, driving the needles deeper into the skull. Hail to the king. And laugh as if laughing him to scorn. The seventh thing they did to his body is gross. They've beat him, they've slapped him, they've slugged him, they pulled his beard, they pushed thorns into his scalp. Now they spit. Now they spit. There are few things that are, more, are any more disgusting and contemptible than to stand and spit on a human being. Here's Jesus Christ, sinless, the man who'd done nothing wrong to anybody anywhere the Son of God from eternity past. Your king, spit. Hail the king, spit. O king, live forever. <laughs> o great king, where's your army? And then they spit on him. I wonder what it would be like for those men on that day 
that the scripture says, every eye shall see him. Every eye shall see him. Every knee shall bow. When they got tired of the blasphemy, Jesus was returned to Pilate. He in turn brings him before the crowd of Jews and proclaims, Behold the man. Look at this man. Look what you've done. See what kind of man he is. There are those who tell us that Jesus was a wimp, a weakling. That's not the picture I get in my mind. A man's man. There are those who believe that following Jesus is for weak people, for women and children. I want you to know it takes intestinal fortitude to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And it's going to take more intestinal fortitude as the days go by that we're living in today. It takes a person of integrity and strong character to deny themselves and take up the lifestyle of the cross, which is saying, Father, not my will, but your will be done. I'll follow Jesus. Behold the man, he says. His face is swollen beyond recognition. The blood streams down his cheeks from his scalp, down his back and his legs, mingled with the slimy spittle of Roman soldiers. He hardly looks human. A sight that would cause most people to be sick to their stomach. But the crowd cries, crucify, crucify, crucify. But he's your king. And the Jews sank to their lowest point as they yelled back, we have no king but Caesar. Pilate turned him over to the soldiers to be crucified. He's now under the charge of a squad of four soldiers, four executioners. One of them brings the crossbar, crossbar to his cross of crucifixion. Here, you carry this. I have read they would often lay the timber across the victim's shoulder and then tie their hands together on one side of the timber so that even if they lost their grip, they would not drop the timber on the soldier's feet behind them. So they'd tie their arms around it and over the shoulder. The procession began through the streets of Jerusalem, down what is called the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering. They would go to the outside of the city because the execution couldn't take place inside the holy city. It had to be outside. They did not take the shortest route. They took a route that would be seen by the most people, so this person is humiliated as much as possible as being sentenced to death on the cross. Those of you who've heard the story before know that he stumbles and falls and they compel Simon the Cyrene to help him carry the cross the rest of the way to the place of the cross, Golgotha. You know, the thieves that are being crucified with him are given wine and myrrh, I guess to help deaden their senses. Jesus refuses the drink. He did not want any stupefying drugs or anesthesia. He didn't want anything to take away from the purity of what he was about to do to be the perfect Lamb of God, to take away the sins of the world. Next, they strip Jesus of his clothes. I don't think in our culture we understand what that would mean in that culture in terms of humiliation. In our culture, as soon as the sun comes out, people start taking off their clothes and wear hardly anything. But they stripped him naked. Vulnerable to all the elements. Vulnerable to the flies seeking the blood and the flesh. Naked to the view of all who pass by. Scripture tells us they nailed him to that crossbeam. I don't believe they had to force him. I believe he willingly laid himself down. And as a couple of soldiers position themselves and hold his body in place, another one takes a seven-inch square nail and with three or four sharp blows of a mallet drove that nail through a hollow spot in his wrist. They take the other arm and nail it to the bar. Then grabbing that crossbeam that he's nailed to, they literally drag him to the permanent post on that hill, lift him up, put that post in his position. 
a crossbeam on the post, and then grab his feet, lay them on top of one another, and drive a nail through both feet. And the people cheered. They whistled and applauded. Crucify him. Crucify him. And Jesus, the Son of God, was suspended between heaven and earth on a wooden cross designated for the vilest criminals. The pain shot up his arm and exploded in his brain. When he tried to move, alleviate the pain in his hands and the fiery pain would shoot up his legs and his whole body would throb from the bruises and the cuts. Hanging caused muscles to cramp. After a while, breathing would become very difficult. While hanging there, taking a breath wasn't so difficult. The problem was getting in a position to exhale. That chest muscle would become so cramped and immobile that a victim would not be able to exhale. In fact, the most common um, cause of death on the cross was suffocation, not being able to exhale and get rid of the carbon dioxide. There were men who hung there for two, three days, even up to a week. A miserable, painful way to die. There he hangs, Jesus, the promised one, the Messiah, the hope of the world. What was his response to the way that sinful men treated him that day? The countryman that he came to save, he's born a Jew, raised a Jew, and they rejected him. As he's feeling his pulse in numerous places in his body from the throbbing. His first words were prayer. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I mentioned the two thieves. We all know the story. Well, I shouldn't say we all. Many of you know the story that there's a thief on either side. And they began to join the crowd in mocking Jesus, ridiculing Jesus. If you who are you say you are, come down from that cross, save yourself and save us. But as the day goes on, one of them has a light go on in his brain. He says to the other thief, be still. You and I are getting what we deserved. This man has done nothing wrong. And then he says to Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, talk about faith. Jesus is being, he's, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. Jesus responded to faith up to the very last moment. He always responds to faith. Today, you will be with me in paradise. As he's there on the cross, some people have him way high. Other people have him just barely off the ground. But wherever, his mother's standing right in front of him. And as he looks at her and understands that at this point in time, his siblings all think that he's a wacko. And because his mother's staying loyal to him, there's a possibility they may disown her because of their lack of faith in him being the son of God of being anything but their brother. So he says to her, woman, and that sounds pretty cold, but I'm told that it's a word of endearment. Woman, behold your son. And somehow he nods to John, his disciple, who's standing next to her. And to John, son, your mother. A family was born that day at the cross. That's where all victorious families are born. That's where broken families are put back together. That's where people who've lost their family find a new one. At the cross. At the cross. As the crowd stood by and watched, there were many who would mock. He saved others again. I said, if you're the son of God, come down, save your, work a miracle, do your stuff. As Jesus was hanging there, the blue skies of midday began to turn deeper blue, darker blue, gray, 
And then the scripture says it became black as night, for the light of the sun was shut off. They looked around for a storm. There was no storm. It was simply midnight in the middle of the day. An eclipse? No, it lasted for three hours. And in the midst of the darkness, towards the middle of the afternoon, Jesus lifted up again and cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Suddenly all the weight of sin, the sin of all time, the lying, the cheating, the murdering, the hatred, the gossip, the drunkenness, the adultery, the fornication, the idolatry, the rebellion, sin. All of that flooded his heart and mind because the Bible said God laid on him the guilt of each and every one of us for all of time. Because of that, God the Father could no longer look upon him. And for that one and only time in all of eternity, past and future, there was separation between God the Son and God the Father. Jesus died all alone so that no one else would ever have to. Jesus died alone so that you and I will never have to be alone. The promise from the Word of God is repeated in the Old Testament again in the New Testament. God said, I will never, 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 never leave you or forsake you. Never. Psalms 23.4 Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Whatever valley you're going through, he said, I'll be with you. I'll be with you. We hear another cry from Jesus, humanity, as he cries out again, I thirst. I thirst. John tells us he spoke those words simply so that prophecy could be fulfilled. Otherwise, he would have suffered in silence. But in the Old Testament prophecy, there's, these words appear, strength, my strength is dried up like potsherd, and my mouth or my tongue cleaves to my jaws. When they lifted the sponge full of vinegar to his lips, then Jesus proclaimed for the world and for heaven and for hell to hear. It is finished. Not I am finished. It is finished. The job is complete. Everything that I came to do is accomplished. Scriptures fulfilled. Prophecies fulfilled in its entirety. And Luke tells us, with a loud voice. That's important to me. I've been with people in their last moments. And almost every one of them, in order for me to hear what they were saying, I know I'm deaf, but I had to get my hearing aid as close to their mouth as I possibly could because of their weakness that they were in that moment. With a loud voice, he cried, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And the scripture says, with that he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. By an act of his will, Jesus died. Selah. In other words, think about that. By an act of his will, he died. Short time later, because it was a holy Sabbath day, it was Passover, one of the holiest of days for the Jews. And, and they could not have dead people hanging or people hanging on a cross. And so they had to be dead and taken away, out of sight. So the soldiers, the executioner would come by and they would take a club and they would smash the shin bones, break the shin bones so a person could no longer push themselves up and down. But when they came to Jesus... Centurion looks up and said he looks like he's already dead. But just to make sure, he took the spear and jabbed it up under his ribcage. And it said, out came blood and water. That's important because it's proof to us Jesus died. Jesus died. Now, there are people who wanted just to believe that he just swooned, he passed out, he was lost, blood loss. But when they laid him in that cold tomb... Somehow the cold tomb revived him, and on Sunday morning he got up. Um, 
He died. That's why Paul said, for his office, you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus died. Did the cross kill Jesus? Did the Romans kill Jesus? Did the Jews kill Jesus? Was it Satan that killed him? Was it your sin and mine? I'll tell you what it was. It was the pain in his heart when he looked into time and he saw men so entangled by Satan's trap of alcohol that they can't go a day without getting drunk. It's a hurt in his heart when he saw a mom so addicted to drugs she neglects her babies trying to find another fix. It was the tears that flowed from his eyes when he heard that husband say to his wife, I don't love you anymore. It's over. I'm leaving you all alone. It's the way his heart shattered when an eight-year-old girl sobbed as she wrote a note to her daddy, please come home, I miss you very much. And then she cried for hours. You know what killed Jesus? It's cries of unborn babies being murdered in the place that he created to keep them safe. It's the weeping and gnashing of teeth from the pits of hell because people died in their sins. It all comes down to this, love. Everlasting love, immeasurable love, love beyond description, beyond understanding that caused him to say, Father, I will do it. I will become sin. I'll pay the price for each and every sin since time began until it ends. And the good news is God accepted the sacrifice. The Bible says when he bowed his head and died, the earth began to shake and tremble. People arose from their graves. And in the temple in Jerusalem, the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy of holies was torn in two from the top to the bottom. That veil, that barrier that said no one can come in here except the high priest and once a year. No one, it was torn in two. God said, I've taken away the no trespassing sign. And now I've put up a sign that says, Come unto me, all you who are weary, heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Come to me, and I'll make you a brand new man, a brand new woman. Jesus died, but he didn't say dead. God raised him from the dead just as he promised. And he put away our sin, our guilt, our shame. Now, whoever you are, wherever you've been, and whatever you've done, you can start all over before God with a clean slate by receiving Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Have you done that? Have you received his love? Have you asked him into your heart? If not, why not? I'm going to share the motivation for this message twofold. A couple of days ago, I just felt I needed to talk about the cross didn't kill Jesus. And the other thing is, I want you to see upon what basis we are praying for the salvation of souls. I want you to see on what basis we're praying for the healing of families. I want us to see upon what basis we pray for people to experience healing today. It isn't based on us, our power, our wisdom, our whims. It's based on the love of Jesus Christ, who's not willing that any should perish. It's based on the love of Jesus Christ, who literally gave himself that we might be whole, that we might have life and have it to the full. That's the heart of God. That's his desire. Knowing that, we can come boldly into his presence in prayer. Prayer for our families. Prayer for our friends. And we can expect to see people delivered, people set free, hearts mended, relationships restored, people born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
because Jesus said, it is finished. I hope you grabbed communion emblems when you came through the door this morning. Our communion is open to everybody who would like to participate. I read from 1 Corinthians at the beginning where Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. I said several minutes talking about the fact we believe in healing and by his stripes we're healed. And I believe that healing has to do with my spirit being saved from my sins. I believe it has to do with my physical body. And I believe it has to do with my mind and emotions. The chastisement of our peace was laid upon him. Peace with God and peace that rules, rules and reigns. So Father, as we hold this emblem today, that symbolizes your broken body. It's more than I can fathom that the God who created everything, God who is spirit, cannot be contained by anything, allowed himself to become confined to a body for time and eternity in order to pay the price that righteousness demanded to counteract the effects of sin in this world by offering to us forgiveness and restoration that comes from the resurrection power because you offered your body and your blood as a sacrifice. Lord, as we hold this emblem we're about to partake of, there are people in this room today who need a healing physically. As we eat this, we're declaring, Jesus, you are my healer. Because that's who you said you are. You said, I'm the God who heals you of all your diseases. I pray for supernatural healing to take place. Lord, we reach out to you, even like the woman did uh, as Jesus was on his way to Jairus' house. And she said, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, I know I'll be made whole. Lord, I pray for that kind of faith to rise up in the individual's hearts and lives today. Jesus, I know that you're my healer. I pray for those who need a healing emotionally or in their mind today. Those who need to be set free from a hurt. A hurt that has caused them not to be able to give forgiveness to someone. Lord, I pray that in this moment as we consider what you prayed for those who crucified you and you said that we are to forgive one another as God has forgiven us in Christ Jesus. I pray that some individuals right now determine, yes, Lord, I'm going to obey your word. I'm going to lay down that offense. I'm going to give that offense to you. I'm going to release that person. I'm going to release that hurt and release forgiveness. Lord, I pray for those who find themselves in bondage to a habit and an addiction. You were broken that we might be set free. And Lord, our freedom is in you. And Lord, I pray that you reveal yourself and your power and your glory in those hearts, those minds today. Thank you. Thank you. By your stripes, we are healed. Shall we eat? Jesus, you took this cup and said it's your blood shed for the remission of sins for many. I am so thankful. I'm so thankful, Lord, that when we come to you and ask for forgiveness, that you wash us with your precious blood. The scripture says your blood washes us white as snow. And it washes away our sins, never to be remembered against us anymore. My prayer is today for those that you've brought into this gathering, whether in the, in the room today or watching via the internet, who have been away from you, or those who've never committed themselves to you. As the Holy Spirit has moved on their heart today, 
And they've come to that place where they say, Jesus, I need to be forgiven. I need salvation. I need your grace. Lord, I, I believe in my heart that you're the Son of God and that God raised you from the dead. And I ask you to come into my life and help me to love you and help me to know you. I thank you that the power of the blood is still working today. You said if we confess, you're faithful and just to forgive us of all sin, all unrighteousness. Thank you for persons being born again in this moment. Lord, we thank you that this blood seals a covenant, a covenant that one day you're coming again for a blood-washed church. Thank God we get to be a part of that church, church around the globe, people who've embraced you as Lord and Savior. We look for, we long for the day that you come again. But until then, we remember we have life because you died, you rose again, and you're coming again. We drink this cup with thanksgiving in our hearts today in Jesus' name. Shall we drink? I want you to stand with us and